The book of Esther. I think everyone would agree that there are times in life when it can be really hard to tell what God is doing. Um, sometimes we think we know what God is doing. A little lower, I think, there, my friend. And then all of a sudden, when we think we know what God's doing, things don't turn out the way that we thought that they would. Sometimes we think we're almost out of the woods and out of the difficulties that are coming our way, and then another bad thing happens. Um, The book of Esther is full of bad things, things that happen up front, and when you read them, you don't know, unless you've read it before, of course, you don't know where the whole story's going, you don't know why these things are happening, and a lot of frowning providences, as we've quoted from the poem, in the life of Mordecai and in Esther as well, and you can know right from the very beginning, it says that Esther's parents were dead before the book was, you know, before ever the book was written. So she didn't have her parents most of her life. She was raised by her cousin or, depending on the translation, uncle. And so she was really by herself for a long time, truthfully. And uh, a lot of things happened in Mordecai's life. Hopefully we'll have time to look at both of them and in Esther's life. But I don't know about you tonight, and I suppose if we had a microphone and we went around the auditorium from one side to the other, we would probably find that at times your life may read a lot like Esther's um, in the book of Esther. Um, Sometimes bad things happen and we scratch our head and we don't understand how these things are going to work together, how they fit into our lives. Sometimes we think that we see the resolution for our problems only to find out that things are actually worse than you ever thought that they could be. Sometimes we honestly feel out of control. Um, We begin to wonder how God could possibly reverse the things that are taking place in our lives, things we think have gone so wrong, but how could he ever make them right? And if we're honest, truthfully, we often don't see, and that's why they call it God's invisible hand of providence working in those times, in our circumstances, and in our situation. That is definitely the case in the book of Esther. As I give you an overview tonight, I don't know if you realize this, but there is no mention of God in the entire book. Um, Not one time. Uh, There's nowhere where his name is mentioned. This is the only book in the Bible that God is not used or mentioned at all. There's not a reference to Bible or a Bible verse. There's no prophecy that is given. Um, In fact, you would never know that there is a God if you had to base it only on the text of Esther. And when you think about it, you think, well, that really can't be an oversight. If it's the only book in the entire canon of Scripture that doesn't mention God's name or anything at all about him, you know that can't be an oversight. It has to be on purpose. It's like the, like the author got done writing the book and said, oh yeah, I forgot God. That's not what happened because it's not an oversight. I would tell you tonight it's deliberate. I would tell you that the author of the book of Esther is trying to make a point. And I think if you read the entire book like I have, and you'll find that this very important point is one that Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews of her time absolutely needed to understand. And I would go a little further. I would tell you tonight that you and I, all of us here in our time, need to understand this truth, and that is this. God is always, hear me, God is always at work, despite 
the appearances, always. But I got to tell you, not like he was at work in the Exodus. You know, if you look at the Exodus story, you'll see that miracle after miracle is taking place in that book. You have the plagues, you have pillars of fire, the, and the Red Sea crossing, and you have all kinds of things that God does. There are no miracles in Esther. There are no revelatory, revelatory visions or dreams. There are no extraordinary, oh, that's definitely God scenes. There aren't. They're all ordinary daily things. One commentator said, just little things that most people would not see as significant in and of themselves. And I would tell you this, that's where it gets hard. That's where it gets hard. But I think that's why this book, or one of the reasons why this book was written. Because here's what God wants you to think tonight. He doesn't want you to miss his silent sovereignty. He doesn't want you to think that he's at, not at work because you don't see any extraordinary things happening in your life. He doesn't want you to make the mistake and believe that God's silence is God's absence. He doesn't want you to believe those things. In fact, I would tell you tonight, if I could have a sermon in a sentence, it is this, God is sovereignly working in every detail of life and in your life, in his story and in your part in his story. So as we've done the other two, as we looked at Joseph, right, and we looked at Naomi and, and Ruth, we want to see this same scenario taking place. We want to look at providence on a macro level, the big story, and we want to look at it on a micro level on a personal story basis and apply it to our lives. So we're going to do those two things. There's always a story behind the story in the Bible, and, and I would tell you strongly, if I could get you to think, there's a great course you can take, and that is how to understand how all the stories of the Bible fit together. It is super illuminating and helpful in so many ways. And uh, there's books on it. In fact, there's myriads of books on it about how I grew up thinking that all the stories were isolated from one another. They weren't really connected. And I saw them more or less like an Aesop's fable where it was just a nice story with a moral teaching to it. And you learned your lesson and you went on your way. But it isn't like that at all. The Bible is not a bunch of stories that don't really coordinate. It is one story from beginning to end, and God is in every single detail of it. Do you remember, uh, again, this might date my age a little bit, do you remember Paul Harvey? Anybody remember Paul Harvey? Remember that? What was his book or his radio show? Do you remember the name of it? Yeah, now you know the rest of the story. And I think when you read Esther, you're thinking, oh, this is about Haman and about against Mordecai and how Esther saves her people. And you kind of think the story is just a bunch of things about those individuals, but it's way, way more than that. It's way bigger than that. Let me show you what I mean. If you're taking notes tonight, I encourage you to do this. Write down the word agagite. Agagite. Agag, the name, and I-T-E, Agagite in it, because it's used five times in the book of Esther. Why does that matter? Well, let me tell you the big story behind the story, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Haman is a descendant of Agag. He said, well, thank you. That doesn't mean anything to me. Well, let me tell you the story behind it. Agag was 
at one point in history before this, he was king of the Amalekites. And he was the enemy of Israel, and more particularly, he was the enemy of King Saul, who was king of Israel, and, and he was a Benjamite, or now they say Benjaminite. <laughs> That's the new rendering anyways. Um, why does that matter? Well, because Saul was told in Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, his job was to go wipe out all the Amalekites and not leave any of them, and to particularly kill Agag the king. And you're saying that's pretty harsh, but you have to realize when Israel was coming out of bondage, out of Egypt and going to the promised land, the Amalekites attacked them by the, from behind. Now, you might say, well, all's fair in love and war. Well, not those days, because everybody who was at the end of the trail of people, which is about two to three million people, so you know how long this line is, right? That's where all the women and children and elderly and infirmed all walked because they couldn't keep up the pace, so they walked in the rear of it. So when you attack a group of people from behind, you know exactly what you're doing. You're attacking women and children. You're, you're not attacking the men and the soldiers. You're going after the weakest people. And of course, God took great offense at that. And he told them because of that, they needed to go and wipe out the Amalekites. That was Saul's responsibility. He doesn't. And in 1 Samuel 15, he disobeys God. And he spares the best of the sheep and oxen, and he spared Agag. And actually, we'll find out more than that, because there were a lot of people who were remaining. Otherwise, we wouldn't have Haman the Agagite left, right? And so eventually, you know the story, Samuel himself has to come, and he says, as you have made you know, women childless, I will make your mother childless today. And the Bible says in a very graphic way, he hacked them in pieces, which is pretty gruesome, but... He was pretty angry at all the things that Amalekites had done. This story, all the way down the history line, and I can tell you there's more to it. The Amalekites attacked them then. Abraham rescued Lot from the Amalekites in Genesis 14. They were one of the fiercest enemies in the conquest of Canaan. They were enemies that um, had to be beaten by Ehud, the left-handed judge. Eglon had the Amalekites come. And remember Ehud? who was a left-handed judge. And can you guess, if the Amalekites were involved, what tribe was Ehud from? Benjamin. Of course, that's the story we're rocking on, right? So he was, and by the way, left-handed is the reason because all, the Benjamites were almost all left-handed and they did slingshots and that was their big thing. But he had a knife because you couldn't use slingshot one-on-one close up. But that was the story that took place. And we could go on and on about David having to attack the Amalekites to bring back his family. And on and on and on the story goes. But it's not over. And if you don't know that story is taking place, you'll just think it's about the things that are on the surface of that story. But behind this story is a long battle in redemptive history of how God has secured his people. And eventually through that, the line of the Messiah through winning this battle. And this is going to be the conclusion of that battle. There's going to be a lot of reversals in the big story. And it's interesting what God does. Um, the, battle, the Bible says that Haman is obsessed with killing Mordecai, still wanting him. And this is the words he uses to bow down. He still wants to rule Israel. And through that, obviously, Mordecai. And he has been given, Haman is given Asher wears the king's signet ring, which means you can do anything you want. And that's when he gets him to decree that all the Israelites should be slaughtered. And they end the story, to show you the big picture, 
Haman doesn't have the ring anymore, but the king takes the ring and gives it to Mordecai instead. And so there's a complete reversal. Every province is going to be murdered, full of, all the Jews in every province, and there were 127, all were decreed to be murdered. By the end, it says, every province defended itself and destroyed all of their enemies. The gallows that were begun to be made for Mordecai, and that's, by the way, an English nice way of saying, and, and the things that the... Um, Asherwaris and the enemies of God, they didn't use a gallows where they hung you. Um, it was worse than that. They impaled you. And it was 75 feet high, and they would impale your body on it, and they would leave you out there. That's how gruesome people were back then, but that's what they were going to do to Mordecai. In the end, the gallows that were made for him, they impaled Haman on it, and not only him, but all 10 of his children, we'll get back to that. Um, God is wait, working through, if you want to write it down, God is working through everyday events to fulfill his story of redemption. And here's how he does it. Listen, he does it and is in control of world powers, powerful individuals, and every event in, can I say it, secular history. If you read, if you would, please be in, Chapter 1 of Esther, verse 1. Now in the days of Azurus, the Azurus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Azurus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign. If you read all that, it sounds like, oh, okay, I really don't care about that part. But it's important, and here's why. Go back and read the Gospels when Jesus was born. It starts with this same kind of language. Why? Luke starts Jesus' ministry in chapter 3 with the same sort of stuff, giving you who Tiberius was the emperor, and it gives you who was the governor and who was the local leaders, and gives you all their names and all the Romans. Why does it start all that? Here's why. Because the stories of God and all of his providences and all the great things he does with his people are on a huge stage. Now, they're not the main players on the stage. So if you think for a minute that God only does his awesome providences and the lives of big-time figures with big names are known by everybody, you would be absolutely wrong. God does it with the little stories of little people who don't in and of themselves have any power or greatness. What he likes to show you is, here's what he does. It's Caesar who's not in control, Pilots are not in control. It's not as you wear us, the kings. They're not in control. God is. See, your story and his are never really out of control. So he is in control of presidents and superpowers like Russia and Yeltsin. Or not Yeltsin, listen to me talking about and, and Putin and all the people who are in charge over there. And he says, I am in control of all of those things, every detail, who's in control, what they do, how they do it. In fact, you'll find when they sleep, when they can't sleep, God is in control of all the evil on a small scale. He's in control of evil on a big scale. He's in control of actually who gets to die on the gallows that people make. You and I need to see ourselves in that story every day. Here's why. We're going to switch Momentum here in a minute. Because you will not understand, very, if anything, very few things in your own story 
if you don't see yours as part of the bigger story. I'm going to tell you in a minute, Mordecai tried to convince and did a good job and ended up being successful. He tried to convince Esther to make choices not based on her story of being safe and secure and doing what was best for her. He tried to get her to make decisions based on her being where God wanted her to fulfill her role in the bigger story. That's how she went from making really not so great decisions, honestly, all the way up until that point, to making a one that was life transforming. And after she makes that decision, her life is never the same because she came to the point where she realized, now I understand my life and every event that's taking place because it really isn't mainly about me. It's mainly about God. And all that he's doing. So let's flip it over one time. So we looked at the macro level. This is what God's doing from the beginning of the book of Esther to the end of the book of Esther. He is saving his people. He's, restore, he's keeping the line of the Messiah going, his people alive. And he's doing it through ordinary, little everyday things in the lives of small, seemingly insignificant people that he brings to prominence. Number two. God's ordinary providence is on a micro level. This is where it applies to you and me. Little stories. Little stories like Pastor Dave standing up here, Hilario getting saved, all those bringing together. See, that's what God's doing. He's going to build something. He's doing something, and he's doing it in very ordinary ways. These I call, and I'll let you think about it in your own life, I call these defining moments. We're going to take the time real quickly to look at one defining moment in Esther's life and Mordecai. Let me set it up for you. Mordecai wants Esther to know, if you want to turn to chapter 4, please do so. We're going to look at verses 14 and 16. I'll read it for you. Verse 12, 4-12. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself. That in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. So in other words, don't think about yourself and your story as if it's just about you. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. God has alternate plans. But you and your father's house will perish. And here he says that, listen, and who knows? Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I'm going to park there just for giving, and give you an application real quick. Most of the time when we think of divine providences, providences, and we even use scriptural language for it, we call it open doors. We think of an open door as something that God opens in front of you and everything and all the details are already laid out perfectly for you and all you have to do is walk through it and everything will be perfect. Can I tell you, that's not divine providence most of the time. In fact, that's not even open doors in the Bible most of the time. Um, one author said, I think it was Matthew Henry said, he loved divine providences and open doors. He said, but sometimes you really got to twist the handle to get through. And I think that when we think of divine providences, I don't think God wants me to do that because not everything was perfectly laid out. And per- that's not usually how God works providentially. Can I tell you this? Mordecai is telling her, and who knows? I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure how it's going to turn out. She ends up risking her life because believing that God providentially can work it out, but she doesn't know for sure. 
It's not a certainty. Too many times we like to think providences are something that we react to, that God does all of us, all of it for us. But most of the time in Scripture, a providence is something that God can do because we know who, what he's like and who, who he is and what he's like. But we have to not, re, we have not just react, we have to act on it to have it be come to completion. Example, if you want to look at one, 1 Samuel 14 was Jonathan, and he had his armor bearer, and only one sword between the two of them, and they wanted to defeat a Philistine garrison who were 20 people at the top of a hill. And there's no way they could camouflage themselves or keep it secret that they were coming. So he decided to say, hey, I know what God can do. And he says this, it may be, that's the text, it may be that God will deliver them into our hands. And so they had this signal. If I can get to this point and I get to the top and they do this, then we'll know that God's providence is with us. If not, then we won't do it. Now remember, it's two against 20. They all have swords, swords and you know, all the weapons. They have one. So it got to the place where the sign he was asking for, so to speak, happened. And he went up and the two of them with one sword beat all 20 of them. And they routed all the Philistines that day based on that providence. But he didn't know. God opened the door to them to go up, but he didn't know the outcome. Let me tell you this. Mordecai and Esther don't know the outcome of how it's going to work out. They don't understand it. They don't know what God's going to do. See, that's what's happening in her life. And he wants her to know, as I said before, that it's not by chance that you're in the position that you are. It's not by chance that you're beautiful, that God made you beautiful. It's not by chance that they had a beauty contest, and of all the women in this whole country, 127 providences, you were chosen. It's not by chance that you were chosen, and all the hundreds of women that were chosen, the king liked you best. Do you think all of that, he's basically saying, do you think all that's an accident? It's not an accident that you are the queen next to him, and you happen to also be a Jew. He wants her to know, do you think all of those things are by accident? No. You know why? Because he wants Esther to see you live in a bigger story than just the details and all the things that are happening to you. And how does she respond? Watch. How should you respond? She takes it very seriously. And I would tell you, from the book at least, one of the first times she's done anything seriously. Pretty much up until now, she's floated downstream and went with things as they've come. But now it's different. Now she's going to call for a fast. She's not going to have them or herself eat or drink anything for three days. And this is the first time in Esther's life, listen, that she says actual words in the entire book. She has not said a word in this book, and these aren't even verbal. They're just recorded and repeated. She hasn't said anything in this book. She's been basically silenced, and Mordecai is the person talking and standing up for God. She's kind of going along. This is the first time she's going to say something. And it's really the first time that she has begun to stop thinking about herself and all that things that how they always impact her. And she's now starting to think of others ahead of herself. She hasn't done that in this book until then. It's the first time that she's ever willing to run the risk of telling people in the palace that she's a Jew. She's kept that hidden the entire book. It's the first time that she's ever really willing to risk everything for her own people when it would cost her her life. 
And in chapter 4 and verse 16, underline it, she, here's her response. I'm going to go into the king, and if he doesn't give me the gold scepter, which means it's capital punishment, if you are not summoned by the king, you don't go talk to him. Only seven men, which were in his council, could go and talk to him without having the gold scepter, and she wasn't one of them. So she says, she goes up and asks for him, and he gives her the gold scepter. But she didn't know that, because if he said no, then they would kill her, just like they killed everybody else on the impaling stick. So she says this, I don't know, but if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. See, it's in the crucible of crisis that Esther is transformed. It's in the crucible of crisis that she actually, for the first time, begins to see her life and every detail that God has worked out in her life as part of a bigger story. She's finally getting it. It's not about Esther. Not at all. Not at all. It's a defining moment for her. We need to know that in our defining moments. Definitely need to. And sometimes we think this in our defining moments, that doing wrong will pay off in the short term, but we don't realize that it never pays off in the long term. And we make decisions based on ourselves, but not ourselves in God's story. And so we make decisions like she could have made to save ourselves instead. She could have, we could have, perhaps avoided social ridicule or we could have kept our job if we just kept our mouth shut and didn't say anything about all that was going on at work. We could have really told the boss who it really was and we could evade blame in our corporation. We could avoid the cost of what it would take to really care about people and meet their needs. But see, we don't realize that it always costs us more in the end, always costs us more in the end if we don't trust God. William Wilberforce, um, his desire was to eradicate slavery in England, and it was his defining moment. He was just at the place where he was giving up. He wasn't convincing anybody, and nothing was turning around. And so, but one day he decided that he would read the story of Esther, and the little phrase, for such a time as this, stuck out to him. It was a defining moment for him. It moved him for the next three decades and at the end of his life, in fact, one or two days after he died, they said slavery was outlawed in England. But see, it was a defining moment for him. He saw himself, William Wilberforce, in a bigger story about what was God doing in this world. And it wasn't about him. Have you ever asked yourself this? Listen, why has God placed me in the neighborhood in which I live? That's what he was... See. Esther, why has God made you, put you in the palace as queen in the time that you live? Why has God put you in the neighborhood? Why might God put you in the office that you work with, with the people that you work with, in this time in their lives? Why did God have you cross the path of so-and-so? Why did God put Hilario in Ray's life 10 years earlier and then to call that card back up a decade later, well, he did it to save him. What might God want us to do as a church in our community? What would he want us to do perhaps in our schools or in your business or in our church? Why has God planted you right, right where you are right now? 
And you'll never figure out the answers to those questions, and perhaps you'd never even ask those questions if you do not see the providences of God and how they are working in your life because you are in a bigger story. Perhaps, you know what, your defining moment might be, or perhaps your teenagers, their defining moment will be at school. And they'll have to stand up for a kid who's very unpopular or do it right, what's right, and they're the only one do it. And they'll have to say this, and if I'm ostracized, I'm ostracized. Maybe a defining moment will be at your job, and you have to stand up for what you know is right, even though they're putting pressure on you, and everyone's supposed to do it, and you know it's wrong, and if you don't, you could be demoted or lose your job, and you have to be able to say this, and if I'm fired, I'm fired. Maybe the defining moment is more financial, refusing to compromise ethically in order to get financial gain. If I suffer loss... I suffer loss. Maybe the defining moment for like so many is relationally. When you're in a relationship, you know the relationship may not be the best and they ask you to compromise your morality and you lose that relationship or you might and you say to yourself, well, if I don't get married, I don't get married. See, that's what God's looking for. But where do you get the ability for a radical obedience? Where do you get the ability to have risk when you know, and when you don't know the outcomes. See, she didn't know whether she would perish or not. But in the first time, I think perhaps in her life, now she has the conviction. Where did she get it? Because I believe she saw herself in a bigger story. And Mordecai helped her to see that. Uh, Karen Job wrote a com- commentary on Esther, and it's a good one. If you, if you want to get a good commentary, it's a good one. There are many of them out there. And she makes this point at the end of her commentary. She says this, it's interesting to note that the phrase Queen Esther is used 14 times in the book of Esther. But then she says this, and 13 out of 14 of those are used after, she says, if I perish, I perish. And she takes that to mean this. See, she was willing to give up the palace. She didn't know if she would be the queen much longer at all. Because maybe the king would go ahead and let all the Jews be wiped out, including her. See, all the time she's called queen and uses that authority are all after she makes the decision to trust God with the outcome. See, that's what Esther does. Mordecai's, can I say, defining moment is interesting. If you'll turn over a little page. Chapter 5 at the end. In verse 14 reads, This his wife, Jeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits, 75 feet be high made. This is, you can see this from a long distance. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now watch. Circle it. Because it says, in the morning. So they had the gallows made. So when did they make it? Overnight. While they are, am I still on? Sounds like I lost a little bit, yeah. While they're making the gallows at night, so they're ready in the morning. Notice how 6-1 starts. On that night. What night? The night they're making the gallows for Mordecai. The king could not sleep. Hmm. 
God's in control of that too, by the way. And he gave orders. Now, you're the king of the greatest power in the world. If you can't sleep, what do you want to do? Watch TV. Back then, call in the dancers, whatever they were for entertainment. For me, I'm thinking calling down to the kitchen and bringing up some food. That's what I'm thinking. You're, you're going to have a lot of stuff fun going on, right? You could have somebody come in and I don't know what else, do, do all kinds of stuff. You could get up, maybe you're going to get a little work done so your next day is not so busy because you're already up anyways. I don't know what you're doing, but here's what he does. Bring me the book of Chronicles of all the people who've done great things. I'm going like, probably the last on my list. And by the way, I took the time to read about Chronicles of Heroes. I'm going to tell you this. They would put anyone to sleep. They are listed almost like printout sheets. And they have this, this on They have date, the event of what the person did, their name, and what the outcome was it of it. And they're listed over and over and over again. So here he says, come and read me this. I'm thinking he's thinking maybe this will make me go to sleep. Now watch. There are a list. It's chronicles. Now, how, back, how far back was Mordecai's? Four years. So a lot of things that happened in four years. So he's reading chronicle. I don't know if he's reading them. And he, what was that guy's name as he yawns a couple times? I don't know. But they finally get, now of all of the chronicles on there and all the guy's name, he goes, he finally reached one. And four years ago, Mordecai, you know, he felt the conspiracy. He stopped the two eunuchs that were going to kill you. And he goes, what, 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 what? He stops them on that one. Out of all of those, he stops on that one. You think that's by accident? No. He stops on that one. And here's what he, he, he doesn't ask a question that we know of about any other ones. He asks the question, and what did we do for Mordecai? And the answer is nothing. Now, God has that card in his deck the entire time. He could use it anytime he wants. But Mordecai must have thought, here's what I did a great thing. Everybody else gets rewarded. They forgot me. God forgot me. Azuerus forgot me. Everybody's forgot me. I'm not sure why that happened. Four years later, now you have to understand the importance of this because this is an honor-shame culture. And the king is really big. That's why they have a chronicle of people who do great things, especially if the great thing is for him. And it was. It was not every day that someone saved his life. And so he is ashamed of the fact that four years passed and this guy saved his life and nobody did anything for him. So he basically gets out of bed and says, we're going to have to make up for this because I'm ashamed of the fact that we haven't and we're going to do it today. So he tells everybody, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go down there, and I want you to go, go down to the court, and I want you to find out who's there. Now, you have to understand that nobody comes to the court early, only people who prepare to get the day going. So all the people who are really somebodies, they sleep in, they come in a little later. Nobody of importance is there. And so he's thinking probably a lowly servant is there, somebody who's getting things done. That's how it's going to work out. And it says, read the verse 4, and he said, Who's in the court? Haman had just entered the outer court. Hmm. Now, he wouldn't have been on there on any other day, but he's so hot after getting Mordecai hung on the gallows 
and paled that he's getting up early. Isn't that amazing? He actually happens to be in the court. He comes in the court, and here's what Haman thinks when the king says, you know, I found somebody who did something heroic and great. What should we do for the man the king delights in? Oh, he loves that phrase because he thinks it's him. <laughs> it's not. It's Mordecai. He doesn't know it. It's going to totally rip his world apart. And here's what happens. He says, put the crown on his head, put the robe on him, put him on the finest horse, you walk in front of the horse, walk him all around the city, and says, this is, what, this is the man who the king delights in. You've got to understand, that wrecked his world. Isn't that amazing how God can reverse everything? Now, there are no miracles. There are no great things. There are no flashes of light. There were no fires or earthquakes. Was it wasn't any of that. Oh, but God was in charge of the details of people not sleeping and looking in a crazy old book and finding the right name. And who could have put all that together? Oh, God, can you understand that you can trust him? Can you understand that he'll get you to the right doctor and he'll be the right surgeon in the right place and you'll go at the right time and he'll be there at the hospital for you? When you do you understand that's how God can work, that that's the providence that God does? He does that in people's lives because he's absolutely in charge. Can I tell you this? You are not forgotten either. Time has passed. You've been praying. Nothing has been happening, but it has. God is working. Don't think that his silence is absence because God is at work and he can bring a reversal like nobody else. And it doesn't matter what your circumstance or your situation or your abilities, who you know, what you know, because you know him, he can change it all. A total reversal. That's the God of providence that we serve. And in our last few minutes tonight, we're going to pray. And I want you to spend the time praying quietly. And I want you to think about your life, your family, and perhaps people that you know and I want you to pray that God will help you and them to see his invisible hand of providence and that we would and you would trust him in things that appear that he's not there, that he's not working, that you can't see him. And you're really wondering, what in the world is he doing? Jesus said to the disciples, remember this in John 13? You don't understand what I'm doing now, but afterwards... You will. You remember that little verse, John 13, 37? Can I tell you this? If you have to know what God is doing and know all the details up front right now, you are always going to be unhappy. It's only when you trust him that when you can't trace him, you still trust him. That's providence. So we're going to take the time to pray. And would you pray hard, pray seriously, that God would help you to see his hand in every detail of everything that you do. And because of it, you'd respond differently. You wouldn't get upset. You wouldn't become impatient. You wouldn't get in fear, be in fear or anxiety because you serve the God who can reverse everything. All right? You pray and then I'll close. Let's do that together.